This week on the show, we have new ZFS features landing in FreeBSD. Uh, we have MapStack for OpenBSD. We show you how to write safer C code with Clang's address sanitizer. We talk about Michael W. Lucas on sponsor gifts, cover the TCP black box recorder, and a Dell disk system hacking in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 240, TCP Black Box Recording, recorded itself on the 30th of March, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Glad you tuned into this week's episode of BSD Now. We have not only Alan in a ZFS shirt, we also have headlines about ZFS. So there's a number of upstream ZFS features landing in FreeBSD or already have landed in FreeBSD this week. So why don't you talk about this, Alan, for a while? Yeah, uh, so we'll have more on next week's show as well because there were just too much to fit it all in one week. But lots of interesting stuff. So our first one here... Uh, is from uh, Alexander Moten, uh, who merged into FreeBSD from Upstream. But it's uh, bug number 9188, increase the size of the debuff cache to reduce indirect block decompression, which may sound slightly confusing, but what it is is we have the compressed arc, yeah. and to avoid decompressing... The, so but, uh, what the compressed arc does is if the block of data is compressed on the disk... It stays compressed when we cache it in RAM. This allows us to get, you know, the two or three or more times compression we get on disk in memory. So we can store more data in the cache. Mm -hmm. um, and then... And this... So the downside to this is if you access a file four times when it was in the cache, you actually decompress it four times. Whereas before, you decompressed it when you read it off disk once and stored it in memory, and then you could read it many times without having to decompress it. Okay. But yeah. LZ4 is so fast, and having a higher cache hit ratio because you can fit more data in RAM is better. So, um, so to mitigate this, especially for blocks that you read a lot, like metadata, so let's say like the metadata for a certain directory that's full of files and you're accessing all the time, like on a web server or a mail server or whatever, there's mm -hmm. a debuff cache. So we keep a small cache of file blocks that we decompress a lot so that we won't have to decompress them many times a second. So, so this, you know, the cache is also... Block, we keep this little tiny cache of uncompressed blocks so that if we read the same block a second time within the same second or whatever, we don't decompress it a second time. Mm -hmm. that so when compressed time. arc uh, was added, uh, we allowed up to 25% of your CPU time to be used to decompress indirect blocks. Uh, so these are the kind of... ZFS uh, is like this tree of blocks that gets bigger and bigger, and indirect ones are all the kind of the middle bits. Mm -hmm. um, so to reduce this decompression cost, we would like to increase the size of the debuff cache uh, so that more indirect blocks can be stored uncompressed. Uh, so uh, if we are caching enough large files with, say, block size equals 8K, the indirect blocks are 1 64th as much memory as the data blocks, assuming they have the same compression ratio, and it's entirely possible the metadata will have a much better compression ratio. Uh, so hmm. we suggest making the debuff cache 132nd of all memory instead of 1 64th. Uh, 
So this will set aside a little bit more of the arc for this debuff cache. Uh, and by keeping more of this data uncompressed, we won't have to decompress it as much and we'll get better throughput. Okay, I'm uh, all for so, that. <laughs> yeah, so that in this scenario, we'd be able to make or to keep all of the indirect blocks uh, for a bunch of blocks in the debuff cache. Um, so basically, because of the way it was sized previously, you could keep a bunch of data in there, but all of the metadata for that data as well wouldn't quite all fit. So by making the debuff cache a little bit bigger, we can fit uh, the most active data and all of its metadata together. Uh, and you know, we want it to be more than the 164th that the indirect blocks would use because we need to cache all the other stuff in the debug cache as well. So in real-world workloads, this uh, won't help as dramatically as in the example above, but we think it's uh, worth it because the risk of decreasing performance is low. It's most likely going to make an improvement, not a... Um, Making it worse. A, yeah. yeah, it's not going to make it worse. The potential negative performance impact is that we slightly reduce the size of the arc by about 3%, so it might hurt your cache-hit cash ratio a tiny bit, but it's going to make the cache hits you get uh, much better. Okay, and this one was developed by uh, George Wilson as the original author? Yes. And a couple uh, of people, including the, you. Yeah, so he wrote the compressed arc feature and this improvement to it. Uh, so he wrote compressed arc and the debuff cache, so mm. it made sense for him to be the one to improve it. <laughs> okay, that's polishing going on. Okay, mm -hmm. very nice. And you reviewed that parts yes. of it? Yes, uh, it was a relatively small change, so it was easy to review. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's something people can look out for or look forward uh, so to that's, even. <laughs> that's in FreeBSD head and uh, is available uh, in, basically in 12 current uh, as of, if I refresh this, um, the time. Yeah, a couple of... uh, 43 hours ago, it went into head. So it's okay. very fresh. <laughs> people are already compiling their kernels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, the next one. Yes, this one's a, a very nice one. So this is uh, the ZooPool checkpoint uh, that we talked about back in like almost a year ago when it was introduced. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's finally been upstreamed and then from upstream down into FreeBSD. So the idea of storage pool checkpoints or ZooPool checkpoints uh, deals with being able to roll back a whole pool. It's basically a pool-wide snapshot. Uh, they're a little special because you can only have one. Uh, and while it exists, no data is freed or overwritten. Everything is kept. So if you make one of these and keep it, you will very quickly run out of space. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it can be uh, thought of as a pool-wide snapshot or a uh, version of Extreme Rewind that doesn't corrupt your data. Basically, it remembers the entire state of the pool at a point that it's taken. So the Uber block that then points to every other block down that, that tree I described earlier. Uh, is copied and kept somewhere. Um, and because the other point of when, a, when one of these checkpoints exists, we never free or overwrite data, mm -hmm. uh, that means that the entire the old version of everything as it existed when the checkpoint was taken still exists. Whereas normally you can roll back to one of those older Uber blocks, but maybe some of the data has been overwritten or something. Uh, this way it's not. Um, so anyway, uh, its generic use case is an administrator that is about to perform a set of destructive actions as part of, um, or actions to ZFS. Um, 
you know, uh, Delphix invented this feature for use during uh, appliance upgrades, right? During the upgrade, they're going to rename some data sets and delete some stuff and all this, and they needed a way to be able to just undo it all if it didn't work. Um, so, or, you know, if you're about to delete something and you're not sure you're going to do it right or whatever, uh, taking the checkpoint first, super helpful. Or yeah, you're going to do a pool operation like adding more drives. And as some people have learned from painful experience, <laughs> if you don't do this right, you can't undo it. Well, now yeah, you can. And if you, if you if take you the checkpoint do it with the, yeah. and you add the drives and you accidentally say, add your two SSDs as separate drives at the end of the pool instead of adding them as a mirror or add mm. you know, your six new drives that were going to be a RAID Z as six uh, non-redundant drives, now you're in a boatload of trouble. Uh, but you just export the pool, import with the flag to roll back to this checkpoint, and it's all undone as if it never happened. Yep, be careful, though, because than... when you roll back, everything you did since then is didn't happen. As if the, it never the way existed. It was. It's time travel. <laughs> Once you go <laughs> back, you can never get back to that same future. You've changed things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's better in some situations than restoring the whole pool if things are yes. to- totally wrong. Uh, yeah, unlike a regular file system snapshot, you can't undo a, a ZFS destroy with a snapshot. Mm. Right, with a checkpoint, you can. But yes, the general idea is you take a checkpoint, you do some stuff, you make sure it all went fine, and then you can get rid of the checkpoint. Or if yep. it didn't work, export the pool, import from the checkpoint, go back, everything's okay. Um, Very nice. Yeah. Good to have. Yeah. But remember, you can only have one, and yeah. <laughs> you don't want to keep it around very long because uh, nothing can be... No, no space can be reused or freed or overwritten while one exists. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll have to make some more experiences with that. But it's good to know it's, that it exists. Yeah. Ideally, it's something you hope you never need. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> And always, when you do pool changes, use the N flag to simulate how the pool will look like. But, yeah, in case things... Yes, already so, uh, yes. Uh, before you do most of these operations, if you add the dash N flag, like ZFS destroy dash VN uh, or zpool add dash N, uh, it will print out what it was going to do without actually doing it. Uh, yep. But it's nice to be able to have the, uh, you know. The, the save option with the checkpoint. Yeah. Okay. But there's more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's also... Uh, 8484, implement aggregate sum and use for arc counters. Um, So in pursuit of improving performance on multi-core systems, we should implement fanned out counters and use them to improve the performance of some of the arc statistics. Uh, These stats are updated extremely frequently and can can consume a significant amount of CPU time. So uh, ZFS keeps track of like every read and write from the arc uh, and like your cache hit ratio and all these things. Um, and doing that can be kind of expensive, especially with the locking. So I think, uh, the version of this keeps per CPU counters for some of this. And then, uh, there's a thread that goes in wrong in the background and aggregates the numbers from all those counters and stuffs them into the one you read so that the stats might be slightly delayed. Uh, I think, you know, 
milliseconds, uh, but you get a lot better performance. You don't spend a bunch of your CPU time just keeping track of how busy ZFS is, <laughs> leaving more CPU time free for you to keep ZFS busy. <laughs> <laughs> In other ways. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that seems like also good to have in the system. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one of the uh, one of my little commits made it in. Uh, so this is ninety three twenty one. Arc loan compressed buff can increment the arc loan bytes counter by the wrong value. So I discovered huh. this while working on the Z standard compression work. Um, mm -hmm. In particular, if you disable the compressed arc feature and then do a ZFS replication with the compression feature. Yeah. So you end up receiving blocks uh, on the receiver side. You're getting the block, and it's already compressed. Mm -hmm. um, it assumed that you only needed the compressed amount of space in memory. But actually, oh. because you're going to uncompress it, because you, you don't have compressed thing. arc on the receiver, uh, you're going to need the logical size, not the physical size. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the function arc loan compressed buff, which basically loans out a buffer from the arc uh, to user land for it to write the data into, uh, it increments a counter, the arc loan bytes, by the physical size unconditionally. So no matter what, it would use the physical size, um, which pre-compressed arc was fine because the physical size was probably the same as the logical size. Uh, but with compressed arc, it means the compressed size, not the actual size. Uh, in the case of ZFS compressed arc enabled equals zero, uh, when the buff is returned via ZFS return buff, it actually has a check. If the buff was compressed, uh, then arc loan bytes is decremented by the logical size instead of the physical size. So the problem came when you receive this block that's, you know, 128k but it has a physical size of only 60k because it was compressed we would increase the counter by 60k then when we would get the buffer back we would decrement the counter and be like oh this block isn't compressed so let's reduce the counter by 128k and suddenly the counter is negative and that's triggers an mm -hmm. assertion and panic ah uh, yeah and we don't want to have that you can't loan people negative bytes <laughs> um, yeah sure <laughs> So okay. uh, switch to using, there's a special function, a macro called arc buff size, which does the check whether, you know, is this block compressed and do we have compression enabled and all that. So by using that uh, in all the cases, instead of manually picking physical size or logical size, we always get the right numbers and it doesn't crash. Uh, it's possible this would actually trigger memory corruption because you were claiming you were loaning somebody 60 bytes and then they were writing 128k into it. So that could yeah. have been a problem as well. That doesn't fit. Yeah. So that yeah. was uncovered by your work in the set standard? Yeah. So uh, while by I was accident, set standard, um, or as, there was uh, a special case in set standard to deal with. Uh, Matt pointed out that if you have compressed arc turned off, but you have an L2 arc, Mm. Um, when you write the data to the L2 arc, you have to compress it the same way as it is compressed on disk because the L2 arc uses the same checksum to avoid having to have yeah. two different checksums to make the L2 arc take less RAM. Um, and with Z standard, we have these different compression levels. 
and we're yeah. not storing them the, the old-fashioned way because we don't want to take up 20 compression types just to store it. And as it turns out, said standards adding negative levels of compression now, uh, which are faster. Um, and that means there's actually going to be 25 or more different levels. And oh, so we man. really don't want to be eating up, uh, you know, there's only room for 30 or 60 um, compression levels in ZFS. And we don't mm. want to use up 30 of those uh, for Z standard. Um, so yeah. I had to oh. come up with a different way of passing the compression level through so we could recompress it properly for the L2 arc. And while testing it, I noticed that when I did a ZFS receive uh, from my other machine, and I happened to use the dash C flag to keep it compressed because it, it was the source code for the... So while debugging on my laptop, I sent a copy of the source code from my development machine to my laptop. And I mm -hmm. wanted it to ship compressed because it's all source code. So it was compressed like four to one. So it would take a lot less time over the network and it would crash. And eventually I yeah. figured it out and it turns out it wasn't my fault. It was a bug because almost nobody disables compressed art because it's an amazing feature. Yeah, of course. But, and it didn't, and yeah, wasn't that if covered you do, before. And you combine it with the um, ZFS compression set and receive, which didn't exist until after compressed arc. Uh, mm. And kind of depended on it and probably they didn't test that way anyway yeah. i found the bug and, since, and i fixed it and it's been upstream yeah. and that's yeah, yeah. my second since, i think that's my right. second real upstream commit because the other one was kind of oh, excellent it was if you do the capital h flag yeah. to exclude the headers, the headers and change all the separators instead of lining up human columns it would just use hard tabs so you can easily like awk or cut out the output mm -hmm. um that wasn't working for the ZFS holds command. There was uh, some missing logic, so I added that. Um, oh, see, small things like that yeah. make a big difference. But yes, uh, hopefully I will land a really big feature soon. Uh, but this is one of the little mm. fixes I got in. Yeah. And it wasn't discovered because GZIP doesn't have negative compression levels. That's no, it wasn't that. Um, so for GZIP, all nine of the compression levels are yeah. actually different compression types in ZFS. Ah, okay. Mm. Right. So. They actually, it actually takes up nine slots. You know, LZ4 takes one, GZIP takes nine, uh, LZJB takes one, etc. Uh, mm. Which seemed fine because they're like, well, we, had, we originally they had 128 of them or 126 mm. usable <laughs> slots. But then they sold the top bit for something else. Uh, oh, and okay. so that cut it down and they cut it. And then, you know, Z standard comes along with its 19 or 22 levels. And then actually there's no bound on the negative level. Eventually, you just get to not compressing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think we're going to support about the first five negative levels or so, uh, which actually make it get faster and faster till it's almost as fast as LZ4. Uh, oh, really I can't uh, wait to get that. It's just yeah. so nice to so, hear about uh, compression levels. With all that, um, we're looking at 25 or more compression levels, and we don't want to use up all the slots in the enum. So mm -hmm. Z standard only takes one because... So in the block pointer, we just have this is compressed with Z standard. Because when you decompress it, you don't have to know which of the levels it was compressed with, right? You know, mm. When you run gzip and you compress something, you know, dash 1 or dash 5, dash 6, dash 9, whatever, it doesn't matter when you g unzip it. Same with yeah. Z standard. Um, and so that was working perfectly. And we didn't have to, we, we only had to know the compression level when we were writing and we could get it from the data sets property. Um, mm. And then this L2 arc thing came up and it's like, oh, when we're moving the data from the arc to the L2 arc, 
we have to recompress it and we have to know what the compression level was. So I had to do all this sure. stuff to keep track of it. Um, wow, excellent. That's yes. certainly a uh, nice work. So now... Uh, anyway, there's a bunch of different stuff and maybe I can describe the design of the Z-Standard work uh, on another day. Uh, when it's coming George out, Wilson, we'll do a special actually, episode. George Wilson's going to review <laughs> Just it for that. and uh, hopefully... Um, Real he soon now. Any problems with it, and, but I will describe the version after I fix any problems he points out. <laughs> yeah, it takes as long as it takes. Uh, it's ready when it's ready. Okay, so yeah, stay yes, stay tuned but, for more um, next week. Optimistic about... me would like yeah. to have it ready, or, or maybe in FreeBSD for the ZFS user conference in two and a bit weeks. Oh, okay, no pressure. That might be optimistic. <laughs> uh, I'm. Very, very strongly hoping to have it committed before I present about it at BSD Can. So that when I tell oh, yeah, the story that, of the year yeah. and a half of effort to get it done, um, there's a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, and they live happily ever after with lots of lots of compression. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, yeah. Again, uh, we'll cover more features landing in FreeBSD from ZFS uh, next week, so stay tuned. Mm -hmm. And um, we should jump into our next item, uh, which is map underscore stack for OpenBSD. I think we covered this also a couple of times in earlier episodes. So basically, this is over at uh, OpenBSD uh, uh, from Theo Derat. Um, mentioning in the OpenBSD-Tech list that uh, almost two decades ago, uh, they started work on write or execute. Yes, sir. Um, WX or X. Yeah. Next or The uh, concept was simple. Pages that are writable should not be executable and vice versa. Pages that are executable should not be writable. Uh, we applied this uh, concept object by object, trying to separate objects with different... Uh, with different qualities to different pages. The first one we handled was the signal trampoline at the top of the stack. We just kept making changes in the same vein. Eventually, write X or X. Is that the way to pronounce it? Yeah. Okay. It's just W, X or <laughs> X. Okay. W, X or X came to some of our kernel address space also. This also led to a push for creating more .ro data objects, just read-only data. The fundamental concept is that an object should only have the permissions necessary and any other operation should fault. The only permission separations we have are kernel versus user land and then read, write, and execute. Uh, how about we add another new permission? This is not a hardware permission, but a software permission. It is opportunistically enforced by the kernel. The permission is map underscore stack. If you want to use memory as a stack, you must mmap it with that flag bit. The kernel does so automatically for the stack region of a processor stack. Two other types of stack occur, thread stacks and alternate signal stacks. Those are handled in clever ways. When a system call happens, we check if the stack pointer register points to such a page. If it doesn't, the program is killed. We have tightened the API. Uh, the ABI. Uh, you may no longer point your stack register at non-stack memory. You'll be killed. The checking code is, uh, what is this, machine-independent? Machine-independent, yeah. yep. So yep. It, it's the same code applies to you know ARM and x86 and Spark and MIPS, etc. All the architectures OpenBSD runs on, yeah. Cool. Uh, we can also perform this check on standard uh, synchronous traps, for instance, page faults. 
Uh, we cannot yet perform it at a standard interrupt yet, but they are working on that as well. So this checking code has been written for I-36, AMD64, and MIP64. Others are being worked on. The check is fast. We comparing uh, five variables for bounce. If that fast path check fails, we call a slower check with the required locking and checks if the process that other stacks, which may be invalid or valid in the region on the stack pointer location, for instance, threads. So since page permissions are generally done on page boundaries, there's a caveat that thread and alt stacks must now be page sized and page aligned so that we can enforce the map underscore stack attribute correctly. It is possible that a few ports need some uh, massaging to satisfy the condition, but we haven't found any which break yet. This syslog underscore R has been added so that we can identify these failure cases. And also defaulting cases are quite verbose for now, so to help identify the programs we need to repair. So and this work has been done with Stefan Kempf, which is stefan at openbsd.org. And you can find more information uh, after that, which includes the patch. So definitely try this out on OpenBSD. It gives you more security that's already there. Yep. Very cool. It's actually something that other BSDs should also look at because it's not too OpenBSD specific. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what the memory usage overhead of having to page align the stacks are, but I imagine it's quite small. So Mm -hmm. The granularity is four kilobytes, so you're probably not going to have that much. And I don't know how many stacks you actually have on a running system. I can't imagine it's more than a couple thousand. Uh, Mm. And so even if you waste two pages... You know, it's like, ooh, eight megabytes of memory. <laughs> More or less doesn't yeah. hurt anyone. And yeah, you probably don't have thousands of stacks unless you're running like Firefox or something. Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay. So look out for that coming to OpenBSD. Mm-hmm. And you should also check out our sponsor for this week. The first one is iX Systems. Head over to iXSystems.com and check out what they have to offer. Alan, you did a couple of orders from them recently, I hear. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had lots of fun installing those 32 12-terabyte disks. Uh, that was lots of fun, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, so we have a primary and a backup machine, and the backup was actually a bit smaller. It had originally 24 5-terabyte drives, whereas the primary had 36 6-terabyte drives. Or sorry, uh, yeah, 36. Um when we needed to grow those systems, we bought the shelves, which we talked about uh, November-ish, I think. Uh, so we bought these 4U special chassis that are just 24 disks in the front and 20, 20 disks in the back, and then a SAS cable that connects it to the server. So for those, we put 24 more 6-terabyte drives in the front. Or, well, we put 12 in the front of each originally, and then we added 12 more 6-terabyte drives. And then we were like, wow, we're having to do that kind of often. Our customer is filling us up with data. Um, we should maybe consider bigger hard drives because uh, we're, we're down to 20 free slots in the chassis already. So we decided to go with the 12 terabyte hard drives because they're actually about the same cost per terabyte as the 10 terabyte drives uh, and really not much of a premium over the 6 terabyte drives uh, mm. and would actually be cheaper than having to buy another uh, shelf plus have to deal with getting more rack space to, to fit it all. Um, so we put 10 more 12 terabyte drives in each of those, leaving 10 slots at the back of each of those chassis free for more 12 terabytes in a couple months. Okay. But 
the problem is the backup uh, is smaller, right? Because it actually only had 24 times 5 terabytes versus 36 times 6 terabytes of data. So the backup couldn't hold all the data anymore. So to catch it up, we also so the reason we bought 32 of the 12 terabyte drives was 20, 10 each for the two different uh, sites to grow the pools the regular way, but then 12 to uh, replace drives in the, the backup server. So we actually, what we did was put 10 of the 12 uh, replacement 12 terabyte drives in the slots at the back of that uh, shelf. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we did zpool replace on 10 of the 12 5 terabyte drives we wanted to remove. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, easy to that do finished, with ZFS. Uh, we could take <laughs> out 10 of the 5 terabyte drives and put in the two remaining 12s and do the last two zpool replaces uh, on the other drives. And then we... Uh, exported the pool and reshuffled all the drives around and brought it back up. Or we could have done it one end at a time moving them, but it mm -hmm. was easier to just shut the machine down for a couple of minutes. It is the backup as it is, right? Sure. Um, but the disks yes. arrive in um, the enclosures already? Yes, so the disks come in the hot swap trays already, and all mm -hmm. the little screws are done up nicely, so we could just mm -hmm. slide them in. It was great. Uh, but the nice thing with ZFS is because we had the extra drive slots available, we could do all of this online. We could do, basically, we only had to do two resilvers instead of 12 if we had mm. done one drive at a time, <laughs> if we, you know, hadn't had the slots. And we still maintained the N plus 2 redundancy the entire time because when you do a Z-pool replace while both the new drive and the old drive are still working and connected, um, yep. you don't lose any redundancy. Sure. That's what you want to have. And you yeah. during the reserval, the storage is still available. It's maybe a bit slower, yes. but it's still available. Well, and you can rate limit the, that stuff as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it worked out very nice. Uh, and it was great because we could just tell IX, you know, it's for the, like, when we were getting the extra disks, it's like, yeah, those are for the shelf we bought recently. But then I could also be like, 12 of those drives are actually for this server that we bought mm. like two years ago and they double checked and made sure that they would use the right drive brackets uh, because yeah. depending on the chassis it might be different hot swap trays and we want to make sure we get you know if the drives come in hot swap trays that's great if they're the right uh, trays for your chassis but they are and so because every system is custom built at ix they have a history of all like i actually get a spreadsheet of all the machines i've ever bought from them and mm -hmm. Uh, I can be like, yeah, I need more drives for that one and this one. And it, it's just, they make the whole process super easy, even when it's upgrading a server instead of buying a new one. Um, you know, it just. And as Alan, Alan mentioned, experience. yeah. Well, and you mentioned that um, one of the people who works for iSystems, Alexander Moten, uh, imported the um, ZFS features we just covered. And he's, uh, that's a good combination. That's because iSystems is using ZFS in, or OpenZFS more specifically in many of its uh, storage servers and employs uh, people to work on this. And of course, they commit that to FreeBSD as well. So there's a win-win for both. And, well, yes, uh, like, uh, all the commits we covered earlier in the episode were committed by Alexander Moten, who mm -hmm. works uh, for iX. 
Yeah. So if you're interested in getting a system that's built to your uh, open source needs, tailor-made, whether it's storage as um, expensive or it needs a lot of CPUs or specific memory configuration, then give them a call and they will uh, recommend you or especially tailor-build you a system that's specifically built for your needs. All right, um, on with the show. Uh, we have some information about writing Safer C, which everyone should look at, uh, with the Clang Address Sanitizer. Mm -hmm. uh, so for a bit of background, uh, the developers in this article were looking at improving their password strength algorithm, and they decided to go with the industry standard tool, uh, ZXCVBN. Uh, I don't know why it's called that. Probably never heard about that. Be <laughs> random um, from the people at Dropbox. Um, so for their web front end, they use the default JavaScript library. But for the mobile and desktop applications, they wanted to use the C implementation. Uh, so they bootstrapped it all together. And it was pretty quick, and they were happy. And they toyed around with some sample passwords. Uh, so I decided to run it through the test suite we had for our previous password strength evaluator. Uh, the test generates a large number of random passwords according to different rules and expects the uh, strength to be given as a valid range. Um, but the test runner kept crashing with segmentation faults. Hmm. So it turns out the library has a lot of buffer overflow cases, uh, which are usually harmless, but eventually they add up and crash your program uh, if you run the evaluator function too many times. Uh, I started fixing these case by case, but reading someone else's algorithm to track down tiny memory errors got old really fast. So mm. needed a tool to help. So enter the Clang Address Sanitizer. Uh, okay. ASAN. And what it's doing is uh, sanitizing the addresses, basically. Uh, well, it sanity checks uh, the addresses before reads and so on. So mm -hmm. the Address Sanitizer is a fast memory error detector. It consists of a compiler instrumentation module, which basically adds information to the code as it's compiled, and a runtime library that can use that data. The tool can detect the following types of bugs, out-of-bounds uh, out accesses to heap, stack, or global memory. Uh, so if you read past the end of an array or anything like that, it will detect it. It can also detect use after free, uh, use after return, so you've left the scope of that function and are still accessing the memory or whatever, uh, use after scope, uh, double free, invalid free, or memory leaks, although that support is only experimental. So that covers a large portion of all the crashes that you've ever faced in C. Uh, so what's the impact on performance? Uh, typically, the slowdown introduced by the address sanitizer is about twi uh, 2x. So your program will take twice as long to run. But the idea is you mostly do this for like the testing suite, not the binary you ship to customers. Or you not the production. production. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But while running your tests, uh, having them go a little slower and actually detect the problems is a big win. Yeah, during development phase. Yeah, that's perfectly acceptable in debugging contexts where usually you're slowing it down a lot more than that. And especially if it saves you hours of painful uh, looking for the needle in the corrupt stack. <laughs> so uh, to try it out, they wrote a simple little program here. Uh, you can see it just declares a uh, static string, hello world, and then allocates uh, 13 bytes of memory to and copies it in. And then... Uh, it sets the null byte at the end. But you see, what we're doing here is actually invalid, right? The string, or the variable stir, is 13 bytes long. So mm -hmm. the valid indexes are 0 through 12. 
So accessing 13 is actually accessing after the end of that memory allocation. Yep. Everyone uh, who's dealt with arrays before had this yeah. transposed so error. If you compile and run this program, it actually works perfectly fine. Because likely, you know, when you did the malloc, you got a whole page of memory and it doesn't happen to be anything using after and you're not, there isn't some other variable stuff directly after it that you're going to overwrite currently. <laughs> um, but it shouldn't work. Or should it? And, you know, it's undefined behavior to access after the end of the array there. So when we're assigning zero to the character index 13, we're writing after the end. Now, if we recompile it with dash f sanitize equals address, um, now, if we output that, you see they have a little screenshot here of what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, colors to the world. Yeah. Uh, it tells you that you've made a mistake and shows, actually does a printout of the memory showing you where this has happened. So we see address sanitizer, a heap buffer overflow at some address, at program counter X, blah, 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 blah. So... Um, the address sanitizer found a heap overflow at that address, which is a seemingly valid address, and it prints out the program counter, base pointer, stack pointer, etc. And when we break it down a little bit more, we see a write of size 1 at that address by thread 0, and it actually goes down to tell us it was actually on line 10 of our clang-asen.c, and we look that up, it's us writing past the end of the array. Yeah, that's and the one. And it tells us, this is located zero bytes to the right of the 13-byte region that you allocated over here. So you realized, oh, I'm actually writing one byte after the end of my uh, allocation. Mm -hmm. this is, uh, that part is definitely one of my favorite uh, indications. In uh, addition to telling which line of the code failed and where the memory, um, the failure happened, you get a... Com a complete description of the closest allocated region of memory, which is probably the region you were trying to access uh, when things went off the rails, right? Mm. If you're one byte too early or one byte too late, knowing what you were one too early or too late from uh, helps you figure out where in the code that's probably coming from. Uh, then they go into a deeper example, actually using LLDB as you go through it, so that instead of crashing, you can actually interactively poke around and uh, single step through the program and see what's going on. <clears throat> so there's all that. Yeah, it's good to have in every C programmer's toolbox. Yeah, uh, and then you can see using LLDB, you can dump out all the thread info as JSON and do all kinds of stuff with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good to have. I mean, the whole LLVM suite is good, but each individual tool is also very, very helpful. Yeah. So, like he says, we get the exact stack trace at the time this memory uh, or this address in memory was allocated. In a more complex program, we would get the history of all of the times the address was allocated and then deallocated, making it a very powerful tool to understand cryptic memory bugs. Because the weirdness you're seeing might not be from the most recent allocation. It might have mm -hmm. been that you allocated the memory, wrote some data into it, freed only part of it or something, uh, messed something up, and then. Uh, later on, reused it or something. Uh, or, you know, you forgot the null terminator and it was fine, except for when the previous person using this allocation of memory wrote something other than zeros at the end and then your string ran off the end of the stack or whatever. Uh, anyway, 
So the conclusion here is uh, back to our practical case. How do we put the address sanitizer to good use? I simply ran the test suite compiled with the sanitizer and hooked it up to LLDB. Uh, sure enough, it stopped on every line that uh, would have caused a crash. It turns out there were many cases where the ZXCVBN-C implementation uh, wrote past the end of allocated buffers on the heap and on the stack. I fixed those cases in the C library and ran the test again. And look, no seg faults in sight. Ooh, excellent. So they said uh, they've used memory uh, tools in the past, but they were usually unwieldy or put such a toll on performance that they were useless in real-life cases. Clang's address sanitizer turned out to be uh, detailed, reliable, and surprisingly easy to use. Uh, they also heard of miracles of Valgrind, but they're developing on a Mac, and macOS hardly supports it and makes it a, a real pain to use on your laptop. Mm. Um, so I know Valgrind, I've used Valgrind on FreeBSD before and found it very helpful, uh, but I know that it had some problems with certain ABI changes and stuff that were made, and... Uh, you know, if Clang works better, I'm happy to have that. Or you yeah, know, to have both tools in your toolbox is better, right? Right. Uh, what the one finds does maybe finds the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even just getting the two different descriptions of the problem can help make it make sense to you. Uh, anyway, coupling with Clang's static analyzer, the address sanitizer is going to become a mandatory stop for evaluating code quality. It's also going to be the first tool I grab when facing confusing memory issues. There are many more cases where I could use early failure and memory history to debug my code. For example, if a program crashes when accessing members of a deallocated object, we could easily trace the event that caused that object to be deallocated. Find where the free was, because obviously maybe we don't want to free it just yet. Uh, Saving hours of adding and uh, reading logs to retrace what happened, right? Uh, You can think of cases where the address sanitizer would be useful, then they would like comments on their blog. Yeah, so try out the examples and um, get a bit more familiar with the address sanitizers. You will find them, they are a good tool to have. Yep. So, time for a news roundup. In this episode, we have one item called On Sponsor Gifts. This is over at uh, Michael W. Lucas' blog. And what we can see here is a stack of books. Yes, this is SSH Mastery, second edition. So he writes, last week Liz and I converted this pile of books books into into this, a little less smaller pile of mail-ready packages, I guess. Yeah, they're basically padded envelopes with books and other things in them. Mm. So what this is about is note the little stack of customs form off of the side. It's like I've uh, learned a lesson from standing at the post office counter filling out those stupid forms. Sponsors should get their books soon. This seems like an apropos moment to talk about what I do for print sponsors. I say I sent them a gift, but what does that really mean? The obvious thing to ship them is a copy of the book I've written. Flat out selling print books online has tax implications, though. Sponsors might have guessed that they'd get a copy of the book, but I shipped them the hardcover, which isn't my usual practice. That's because I sent sponsors a gift. As it is a gift, it gets to choose. Uh, I get to choose what I sent. I want to send them something nice to encourage them to sponsor another book. It makes no sense for me to send a sponsor a singing Wedgie O'Gram. 
well, maybe there's, uh, maybe there's a couple sponsors. You know who you are. Uh, <laughs> the poor bastards who thought into my, uh, who bought into my scammer, sponsored my untitled book, have no idea what's coming. As of right now, their sensible guesses are woefully incomplete. Future books, they might get a copy of the book. They might get book plus something. They might just get the something. Folks who sponsored a jail's book might get a cake with a file in it. Who knows? <laughs> if it's it's a gift, it's my job to make that gift worthwhile and to amuse myself. Because otherwise, what's the point? So yeah, thank you, Michael, for doing this to sponsors. I look forward to picking up my sponsor gift at uh, BSD Camp because I told him, don't ship this to Germany. Uh, just take it along with you on your BSD Camp travel this year so I can be surprised. Because he's I've got room for more stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I'm yes. at, now that I'm you know, reporting this, it's nice so I can forget about it until BSD Camp and then I'm like totally surprised that he has a, a book for me. Yeah, you you might want to avoid being surprised by a Lucas. Um, sure, yeah, surprises. A few times and <laughs> but yeah, suddenly I'll take there my was a, a French version of the book, or there was uh, Liz made me some very nice gifts. Actually, thank you. Liz. Oh yeah, very nice. Yeah, so um, of course, look out for more. Because she understands the pain of putting up with Michael. <laughs> I guess she is uh, trained now. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, if Michael um, is putting out a request for sponsorship for a future book, I strongly suggest you should think about giving him a bit of money up front to have your name in the book when it appears. So everyone who reads that book and opens it and reads through the acknowledgement section, you are listed there for yeah, the eternity. Well, it, de it depends if you happen to want a cake with sharp pieces of metal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in case you are um, in a jail when you get to buy the jail book or has sponsored the jail book which is a nice <laughs> way of getting your file to get out of jail um, uh, well no yeah, jail we'll escapes. see <laughs> here. but yeah thank you Michael and we look forward to more books from coming coming from you alright uh, so then we have another FreeBSD commit not ZFS related this time uh, from FreeBSD committer Jonathan T. Looney um He's added the TCP black box recorder, uh, which Ooh. was a feature we discussed at BSD CAN and BSD CAM last year. Mm -hmm. The TCP black box recorder allows you to capture events on a TCP connection into a ring buffer. It stores metadata with the event. Uh, it optionally stores the TCP header associated with the event, even if the event uh, associated with a packet, and also optionally stores information on the sockets. Uh, so it supports setting a log ID on a TCP connection and using this to correlate multiple connections that share a common log ID. So uh, you can actually tag data as it comes in and then um, keep related tags together so you can extract this information and actually correlate separate connections too. Okay. So you can log connections in a couple of different modes. If you're doing a coordinated test with a particular uh, connection, uh, you can test the system and put it in mode 4, which is just continuous dump. Or if you want to monitor for, just for errors, you can put it in mode 1, which is the ring buffer, and dump all the ring buffer associated with a specific connection ID uh, whenever we get an error signal uh, on that connection ID. Uh, you can set a default mode that is, uh, will be applied to a particular ratio of incoming connections, uh, and you can also manually set uh, to a mode using a socket option. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is 
Um, I don't know when I'm going to want information. Uh, so if you're Netflix and you're doing 100 gigabits a second out of the box, you can't TCP dump. That's impossible at a scale, yeah. at a scale, yeah. Yeah, so you could set it and say, you know, keep a small ring buffer on every connection, and then if we run into an error, we can grab that uh, ring buffer and dump it, and now we'll just have caught the stuff leading up to and the error uh, while not actually having to store everything. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, I'm just doing a test on a router, and I just want to see, you know, this particular connection come in or, or a load balancer or something and grab it that way or your netflix and you just set it on a certain ratio so just you know one in every ten thousand connections i want to log the data so i can get a sampling of what's going on yep for statistics and other interesting uh, analysis purposes uh so this commit introduces just the basic probes for dealing with the connections or whatever uh randall stewart has added quite an abundance of probes to his TCP development work, and he plans to commit those soon, although this part had to go in first. Um, there are user space programs, which they plan to add to ports. Uh, these read the data from the log device and output uh, PCAPNG files, so you actually be able to analyze it in TCP dump or Wireshark. Uh, and then they'll let you analyze the data uh, and the metadata. Uh, so even the data added by the kernel that isn't normally part of the packet will be in a format that you'll be able to analyze with your packet analyzer. Mm, excellent. I can also see this good for um, finding out uh, problems with firewalls where you have two restrictive mm -hmm. rule sets and stuff. Um, there's generally enough logging in firewalls already where you can log rejected packets and so on. True. Um, yeah. But yeah, having this little ring buffer black box uh, means you can use it for anything. And more mm -hmm. importantly, you can correlate connections. So if you're writing a load balancer, right, you receive an incoming connection. And then in response to that, you make an outgoing connection. But by using the socket option stuff, you can actually tag both of those connections as being, you know, a certain session uh, for mm -hmm. the load balancer. And suddenly you can deal with both of those flows. You can extract both of those flows and know that they're related. Yeah, uh, and have the and that makes a big association. Difference. Yeah. yeah, I think networking people will like that very much. So, But even just, you know, a varnish cache, just being able to associate mm. the incoming connection with the connection to the back end may actually make uh, quite a useful feature. Okay, very nice. Yeah, so people should check that out and look for more coming from uh, Netflix and Randall uh, in yep. this specific Lee. area. Yep. Speaking nice. of load balancers and performance... Yep. Time for DigitalOcean. Uh, if you head over to digitalocean.com and sign up, you can get a FreeBSD machine running in the cloud in like less than 55 seconds. Uh, then you can use either use their load balancer feature or use their uh, floating IPs feature and run a varnish in front of multiple droplets uh, to deal with your website. So you can scale up your website. You can add additional droplets when you need them since you pay for them only hourly, you can turn them off when you don't need them. And they have a great yeah. API. So on the front end one that's running Varnish, and maybe you you know get one with a, a bit more RAM for that, um, like if you look down here in the uh, flexible droplets, you can get one with lots of RAM and not much CPU because Varnish doesn't need a lot of CPU. Uh, and that will receive all the incoming connections from your for your website and then pass them out to 
however many backends you have. Then it can detect, hey, all the backends are pretty busy right now because the site's busy. Let's spin up some more backends and use them. And then, oh, the site's not busy anymore. Let's spin down some of those backends. Hmm. And, and since you only pay hourly, you only pay for what you use. Sure. And you might be um, sharing your little droplet with multiple team members, maybe the web developer or other networking people or a database administrator. So you can create a team on DigitalOcean to manage that uh, little droplet or the droplets you might have. So there's yes, one uh, account for multiple teams. Uh, it has security I love features. That because I have a personal account. I need to be able to access the scale engine account. I need to access the. Uh, uh, an account for another group of people I work with and, and a fourth one. And I can do that with one login. I don't have to have multiple logins. I can easily just like, oh, I make sure that all my personal droplets go on my credit card. Sorry. <laughs> what did you just drop down Nothing. here? Uh, <laughs> Droplet? <laughs> my droplets go on my credit card. The company's droplets go on the company's credit card. And, you know, my employees can't see the company credit card. Yeah, because you can separate the billing permissions to only yeah. look but, at certain um, The Teams feature is even just useful. Uh, you know, I run the mail server that does more than just my mail. So maybe I need somebody else to be able to access it while I'm in Japan and I'm going to be out of the time zone and only awake when they're asleep and so on. Mm -hmm. um, being able to have someone else be able to go in there to be able to just reboot a droplet or whatever, super helpful. Yep. So when you sign up and start your first droplet, make sure to use our coupon code, FreeBSD Now, which gives you a $10 credit that will allow you to try it out for quite some time before the real billing starts. And that way you can explore the DigitalOcean uh, environment uh, mm -hmm. on our bill, basically, for the first $10. Yeah. Um, you know, with the hourly billing, if you only use it for a little bit, it only costs you that. You know, if you're just using it to mess around with, you know, I just want a remote FreeBSD machine I can play with and I'm only going to play with it, you know, four hours a day, two days a week, then you only pay for eight hours a week. Hmm. Yeah, that's possible in DigitalOcean. Okay, that's, um, uh, we have another new news item for uh, this section called Out of the Way KDE 4. <laughs> So from the picture, yeah, you can already see that there's a bit of a rough uh, or rude um, moving uh, unwillingly. So uh, it says here that KDE 4 has been rudely moved aside on FreeBSD. It's still installed. Use X11 slash KDE ports or package and we'll should update. That, that's the change. Instead yeah. of being called KDE, it's called the KDE 4. You need yeah. a 4 now. Right. Uh, well, you said without the 4. And that's the oh, sorry. doesn't work anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So KDE yeah. 4, so renamed, that's the one. Yeah. They renamed KDE to KDE 4 so that uh, very soon they'll be able to add KDE 5 as an option. Mm -hmm. So if so, you yeah. already have KDE 4, when you do package upgrade, um, the names of everything will change, but you'll everything will be fine. Everything will still work. Yeah. It'll be okay. The, yeah. The ports people or the KDE team on FreeBSD specifically put a lot of effort into this, making it uh, seamless for the user as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is another step towards adding modern KDE with Plasma 5 and applications to the official FreeBSD port tree. 
Uh, this has taken a long time for administrative reasons, getting uh, all the bits lined up so that people sticking with KDE 4, which right now should be everyone include <laughs> using KDE for virtual ports and packages on FreeBSD so that they don't end up with a broken desktop, which no one wants, especially with KDE. Uh, they don't want that. But now that everything QT4 and KDE Lips 4 uh, based has been moved aside by suffixing it with dash KDE4, we use the unsuffix names free to indicate the latest and greatest from upstream. Yes, mm. I remember when QT5, I think, first came out, the name of VLC uh, changed. So mm. because I had KDE installed, when I tried to package install VLC, it's like, well, I'm going to uninstall KDE and all the QT4 stuff and install QT4 and VLC. I'm like, that's not what I want. And a little searching found that if I do package install VLC-QT4, uh, I would get something that would work with KDE. And so they've done that with all the KDE and QT4 stuff. So now you'll be able to choose KDE4 or KDE5. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so KDE4 users will see a lot of packages moving around and being renamed, of course, as Alan mentioned. Um, but uh, curiously, the KDE4 desktop depends on QT5 and KDE5 frameworks 5. And it has quite for some time already because the oxygen icons are shared with KDE frameworks, but primarily because FileLite was up, updated to the modern KDE applications version some time ago. And the KDE version had some serious bugs, although it doesn't, uh, yeah, the blog post. KDE uh, 4 version. KDE 4, when yeah, you're right. Di- when you're differentiating 4 and 5, you have to actually say the numbers <laughs> how, as it's, it's written on the page. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, so that one um, had some serious bugs, the KDE 4 version, um, but that's um, not sh- sure yet what they were. Yeah, so um, previously they were forced to give the KDE 5 version of FileLite to both, or to KDE 4, and so that they would be able to do it for 5. Uh, now they have the option of giving KDE 4 users the buggy version back, but I doubt that that was what will happen. Mm-hmm. So from here on, they've got the following things lined up. QT 5.10 is being worked on, except for a web engine. It would slow down and update way too much because Plasma is going to want QT 5.10 soon. There is a CMake 3.11, uh, which is in the RC stage, so that it's being lined up. And the KDE 5 import branch of KDE FreeBSD's copy on the FreeBSD Ports 3, also known as Area 51, is being prepped and polished for big SVN commits that will add all the new bits. So they've been saying real soon now for years, but things are real sooner now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it takes a lot of work. I know that the KDE guys put as much work in this as possible to make it um, available as soon as possible on FreeBSD. And uh, thanks for the efforts. Uh, and, you know, their biggest problem is that every time they almost hit there, you know, some component moves up a version and then it gets more complicated. Yeah, if you uh, want to offer your help, then you can contact them at, uh, is it FreeBSD KDE at FreeBSD.org yeah, or is it just uh, KDE? I think they're both the same, but FreeBSD-KDE at FreeBSD.org uh, is the team's alias and you can uh, reach them by email there. Mm-hmm. Okay, very uh, good to have KDE updated soon. And uh, yeah, look forward to that one. Yep. Uh, so next we have a uh, uh, slightly older blog post, but about the Dell FS12-NV7, which is a little, well, a, a 2U server that's uh, great to build a free NAS. Oh. Um, 
So it covers uh, dealing with the storage controller, which uh, Perk 6 is basically just an LSI Mega Raid 1078, so can be flashed to uh, just behave as an HBA. Uh, or you can add your own SAS card and uh, walk through that a little bit and talk about uh, the machine. Basically, um, the Dell FS12-NV7 is a quite popular machine that is getting quite a bit older nowadays. Uh, and so lots of them are available from various you know computer recyclers like mm. uh, on eBay and so on. So uh, if you're looking for a relatively, I guess, medium-sized but uh, professional-grade hardware to build a free NAS with, this is a good option. Although um, mm -hmm. the hardware's a little on the old side as far as power efficiency, and in particular, the the RAID controller is, I would aim for something slightly newer. And uh, noise levels, I yes. guess. Uh, I don't know what the noise levels are like, but uh, <laughs> definitely you want to aim for something like the LSI 9206. Seven or ninety two eleven instead of the old ten seventy eight. Mm. Yep. So if but, you yeah, are say, uh, Mark, huh. yeah, they talk a bit about the SAS card and how to set that up. Uh, moving on to the front of the case, there's twelve metal drive slots uh, with the back plane behind it. Dell make machines with either black planes or expanders. A black plane with a one to one SAS channel. Uh, drive connectors and expanders takes one sash channel and multiplexes up to multiple drives. So depending on which one you get, you'll either, if you have 12 drives, you'll actually have three SATA ports and you'll need a controller that can handle 12 drives. Uh, whereas, you know, for example, the 9211-8i only handles eight internal drives. Um, but if it has an expander, all on one cable, you can handle like up to 128 drives or something. Uh, so you watch out for that because you might end up needing uh, a bigger controller or a second controller to connect all the drives. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, actually, when I built the the backup machine I mentioned earlier, uh, because I wanted to use SATA drives back then, uh, I went without an expander. So 24 drives in groups of four meant I actually had to buy three LSI controllers, <laughs> each one doing eight drives. Mm-hmm. And then I added the external shelf. So that machine actually has four LSI controllers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, planning ahead is important when buying yes. servers. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so they talk about that a bit more. Um, uh, in particular, going with LSI controller because of the best OS support for BSD and so on. Um, mm. And I talk about basically removing the perk and plugging in your modern 9211 or whatever and running the cables and connecting it to the back plane, all that. Um, they talk about a bunch of the different places uh, and things to get it all connected. Uh, they also talk about using SATA drives and uh, mixing those in there. Um, and they say, well, removing the back plane looks tricky, uh, but it isn't really once you look a bit closer. Uh, once you take out the fans, which are held in place with the rubber blocks, undo a couple of screws, it just lifts and slides out, and you can um, put in the expander or non-expander version, depending on what you want. Mm -hmm. uh, and you also look at the power supply. It has a special connector into the back plane so that you can power all the drives, and you might have to rewire that a little bit. 
Okay, but other than that, you should be on your way, having a nice uh, free NAS or whatever NAS system mm -hmm. on FreeBSD powered hardware, or that that's well supported driver wise. Yep. Anyway, if you're interested in turning uh, one of these recycled Dell machines into a NAS, all the details are in the article here. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week, uh, starting with Adrian de Grot's post, FOSDEM blog post. So, FOSDEM has been a while, uh, two months almost, or even more yes, than that. Uh, but I, I found the story while reading the previous update about KDE 5, because uh, Adrian de Grot's a KDE developer uh, who mm -hmm. works on keeping it ported to FreeBSD uh, and happened to be at FOSDEM and uh, came to the Dev Summit and so on. But he yeah. has a bit of a report on mostly KDE-related stuff uh, from FOSDEM, including uh, getting to play with his older uh, KDE Slimbook and looking at a newer KDE Slimbook 2. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, looks nice, yeah. With some more decorations on it. <laughs> yeah. uh, talking to various people uh, where he was helping run the KDE booth and uh, all the other interesting stuff that happens. Uh, yeah, FOSDEM is just great. I mean, not literally, but figuratively, it's a big conference and there's a lot of open source projects that are uh, popular or are just uh, starting out. So it's definitely worth attending. You can get a glimpse of what it looks like uh, from the pictures here. Yep. But if you're more interested in uh, the slightly less BSD-focused and more desktop-focused uh, perspective on FOSDEM, uh, check out that blog post. Mm -hmm. Okay, next up is my first FreeNAS. And if you click on that, don't be shocked by the picture you see. Uh, this is not how you treat disks, unless you want to get rid of them. Uh, <laughs> mm. uh, that certainly has lost data. Um, <laughs> it can't be recovered. I think not completely. So that one deals with uh, creating a uh, very first free NAS, which is interesting uh, to read from uh, someone who hasn't done this before, apparently. So it yeah. talks about... Uh, the starting is like, since entering college, my file management has gone from tolerable to disgusting. My hard drives were littered with folders uh, upon folders called sort me and so on, and lots yeah. of duplicates and so on. And they talk a bit about looking into it and then uh, getting an IBM DS3200 and replacing it with free NAS. Ah, yes, and it talks yeah, about the configuration. About, yeah, uh, so this seems to be one of the few people who used FreeNAS at work and then adopted it at home instead of the usual path, Excellent. which is to use it at home and then end up solving problems with it at work. Yeah, but we like either direction, so as yeah. long as people are using a good NAS solution, then yeah. it's they, they will see the benefits, definitely. So, uh, the conclusion at the end was my new FreeNAS server has been configured and I've been using it without any error since. Shout out to the FreeNAS team as they have uh, great forums and lots of information. Again, I was not being uh, very technical on purpose as I wanted to give an overview of what FreeNAS is as a whole. And if you want me to add more technical details, then uh, let them know in the comments. Mm -hmm. Very good. 
And if we're on the subject of NASes, NASes need disks, and disks need to be checked with uh, Smart, of course. And we have a Smart call for testing by Michael Dexter, which ties into his last year's Asia BSDCon, which are now available on video on YouTube. We covered this last week. So he's talked there about uh, Smart and making it uh, more right. open so sourcey. Actually, adding a Smart command to the BSDs. So currently, if you want to access smart data on your drive, you're most likely using SmartMon tools, which is this uh, GPL licensed tool, which you can package and install. Uh, but if you've ever tried to use it in a script or something, you might notice the output is not exactly friendly to anything but humans and even barely humans yeah. um, because of the way it tries to line up the columns and so on. So uh, this is a simple script-friendly smart utility that is BSD license and could be, say, included in the base system once it's uh, stable. Mm -hmm. So in order towards to get that, or in order to get to that point, uh, on free BSD machines, if you could run package install smart and run smart on a disk uh, and make sure it works and point out any problems that don't work, um, especially if you have SSDs, SSDs do all kinds of weird things with smart data and have a lot of different values that aren't common across hard drives. Mm -hmm. Uh, or if you have uncommon hard drive manufacturer, you know, we've got lots of Western Digitals and Seagates and probably HDSTs, but Toshiba's yep. maybe less. And, uh, you know, any drives I don't have have pretty much not been tested with this yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a, a bunch of Intels. Uh, yeah, what are those? So I have lots of, most of my SSDs are Intels. Uh, mm. But if if you have some of the more exotic, Spinning rust? Uh, well, no, uh, user grade ssds instead of data center grade mm. consumer class stuff um i've not tried any of things like that you know i don't have any ocz or or yeah some Kingston of the older ones or any of these other um more consumer brand ssds and we'd love to get more information about those mm -hmm. um, and they so provide the source instructions up on github so if you want to try to fix problems then go ahead um but uh, if you do encounter a problem, they specifically ask for certain information, uh, such as getting the list of devices as they're detected by FreeBSD, the identify information from the particular drive, and the output of the GPL smart tool so that they can compare and figure out what they might be missing. Yeah, help that effort, and um, it benefits everyone who's uh, trying to check yes. their disks. because uh, this should mean in time for, say, FreeBSD 12, we'll just have a smart tool built in instead of depending on smart CTL. Mm -hmm. Very nice. If it has output that I could say, if I could libucl it and make it, or uh, libzo it and make it output JSON, that would be great. Yeah, that would that that tool will definitely get more functionality over time. Mm-hmm. Um, where such functionality is discussed typically is uh, BSD CAN, and yes, for that, this is the main North American BSD conference and one of the biggest BSD conferences in the world. Most important event on the calendar. Highly recommend you attend. Yeah, be there. Don't miss anything. And if you have um, a little problem financially, but definitely want to go, then the FreeBSD Foundation has put out their travel grant applications for BSD CAN now. So you have 
um, here in a small small section in FreeBSD Foundation's blog, uh, that the travel grant application for BSD Can 2018 is open now. The foundation can help you, yes, you, uh, to attend BSD Can through our travel grant program. Travel grants are available to FreeBSD developers and advocates, so you don't necessarily have to have a commitment. If you've been advocating FreeBSD in your circles, then you're definitely eligible for such a grant. Who need assistance uh, with travel expenses for attending the conferences related to FreeBSD development? Then that um, travel grant period, you can apply until April 30. And you should apply as early as possible so Mm -hmm. we can decide as soon as possible and let you know. Yes, because if you book flights sooner, they're cheaper. Yes, and uh, don't go, yeah, don't contribute that much yet, and I'm not sure. Just just submit the one. The, the worst thing that can happen is that we say no, and you haven't lost anything. But if we say, yes, you can go, you get that grant for a little trip report afterwards, then, yeah, yeah. that's that's the thing. Then you'll be at BSD Can 2018. So, um, fill out the I hope tram- to see you all there. Yeah, if it wasn't for the travel grant, then yeah, we we can't help you only in this way. This is just yeah. So now one way. for something completely different. Yeah, switching uh, gears here a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, BSD developer Christoph Johnson, who's uh, we've interviewed before and worked on Mandoc and Beaches, and I think he did. Was the, it Asia BSDCon this year? Yeah, he was. But I uh, worked on the OpenBSD Acme client. I think that was his. A uh, yep. bunch of other things Among like that. Things. Uh, mostly Mandoc, which has made all of our lives better in BSD and Lumos. Um, happens to be quite a, a d- deep-sea diving uh, aficionado. Uh, so uh, he did an interesting interview with none other than <laughs> Linus Torvalds, uh, in which they did not discuss operating systems. Uh, so it turns out <laughs> Linus is also uh, a diver and uh, this is an interesting interview by Christophs uh, of Linus about diving and how that came about. Ah, oh, see, we can all get along underwater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, oh wow, this is very diving specific. I'm not that into diving, but oh wow, the pictures are nice. Mm-hmm. Look at that octopus. Cool. Oh, wow. This is a really long interview or a long blog post. Yeah. Cool. See? Uh, uh, and it uh, gets into some open source diving software that Linus has written <laughs> called uh, Subsurface. Mm. Ah, he couldn't call it Subversion because, yeah. It would be. <laughs> well, also because that wouldn't be about diving. <laughs> Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, here, the, here go the puns again. Um, <laughs> yeah. So check out that one and um, yeah, see how, how maybe that tool, if you're a diver, then maybe that tool will help you. Yes. Uh, and, you know, if you're interested, also check out the rest of uh, Christoph's blog, including I think the front page has a map of uh, all the different places he's done his diving. Mm-hmm. So the next item is um, from Michael De- Michael Dexter's um, Twitter feed, and he asked um, on a semi-official or semi-serious Twitter, I think it's serious enough, uh, Twitter votes, um, the secret to a faster FreeBSD default build world is, and he provided a couple of options with a follow-up 
uh, response to himself with a couple more options. And uh, 48 votes were cast uh, during the voting period and uh, 13 on the sub uh, voting section. Yeah. And uh, 48% and the winner was TempFS on user source and user object, followed by 40% uh, more hardware CPUs. And with just 8% more virtual CPUs and 4% more gigahertz. And the uh, compiler cache received 54% of the votes and more RAM received 46% of the votes. That's interesting. So they're uh, different. I think combine those. Early, early testing showed that the first four hardware cores make the biggest difference. And then uh, in sometimes you end up blocked and waiting on other stuff and you don't quite get mm. a linear progression anymore uh, after four, but yeah, don't try to rebuild stuff that's already new or has yeah. the same way and uh, or has the same binaries w- that you already watch have. Out so for Numa, in in particular, you know, if you have Ryzen, you may have sixteen cores, but what you actually have is four separate CPUs with four cores each, uh, and talking between them can be more expensive and cause interesting side effects. Same thing with, uh, he was comparing a, a four-core E5-1620 to a uh, dual E5-2670. Um, so two separate sockets made a big difference there. Oh, and he actually, uh, another one here with uh, four E7-4870s, which is a uh-huh. really big machine. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> a lot of CPUs. I'd like to have one of those. <laughs> wouldn't like to pay for the electricity though <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah so i just thought we shared this with you to see um for people who are still wondering how to speed that up so and the last bit that we have is one i found um just recently uh, it's called teammate which is an instant terminal sharing application using tmux of course and if you're doing a lot of uh you know, demos or showing other people how certain things are being done in the, or how you do them in the shell. Uh, this is uh, something you should look at because it allows you to share a read-only view of your terminal, among other things. And the read-only connection string uh, can be retrieved with teammate show messages. And so basically another person can run this and you can run this as a server so other people can connect to that and watch what you're typing. And this is good for demonstration purposes or... Um, oh, I need to enter a couple of complicated commands and someone else should check over that um, and contact me if I'm doing something wrong. Or maybe Alan wants to show me how to configure a certain ZFS pool configuration. So in FreeBSD, there's a tool called Watch, um, which is designed for root to watch somebody else's terminal. So Mm -hmm. you can, you know, basically someone else SSH in and you can use Watch to then have a read-only view of their session, but there's a flag to make a write view to their session as well, uh, which basically end up doing the same thing, although I definitely see the advantage of uh, teammate in that neither of these people have to be root for this to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the other person doesn't need an account on the machine and so on. But I found Watch particularly useful during training, teaching people stuff, mm-hmm. uh, mostly for one-on-one, obviously, but have them do it in their terminal, but I'm connected with usually the right option uh and then i can basically watch what they do and see how they're doing it um and add things or you know when it they try it and it doesn't work i can you know show them you forgot this bit 
and so on. And just having my own keyboard, um, you know, sharing things with people is not fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it can also help. Um, I found some people uh, are nervous typers. They get they type a lot slower if somebody's watching them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you watch uh, over their shoulders. I I've, I had not experienced that. I've, I've never felt this myself. Uh, so I found it very strange when the first time somebody's, I'm like, you type faster when I'm not looking. What's up with that? Yeah, or they make more typing errors because yeah, uh, I'm yeah, like, just... uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I will I will not hover. So using something like this, pretend so I'm not here. I'm I'm hovering, but they don't feel me hovering. Uh, it it <laughs> speeds things up a lot. Sure. So there is a bunch of ways you can install this for various operating systems provided on the website. And there's a little architecture diagram as well if you want to get into the technical details. Uh, otherwise, just try it out. Another thing you should try out is our feedback and questions sponsor, Tarsnap, of course, because you can never have enough backups. And that's one way of doing them. But the yes, parent way... You can never have enough backups... But if they're deduplicated, you don't have to pay for all of it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You might have a bunch of files that you need to back up just in case something goes wrong, like SSH keys or other access data, and you yes, want to make the sure... the number of people who like lose their SSH key every time they change computers or something. I'm like, yes, it's good to refresh your SSH keys when you get a new computer, but you probably don't want to do it because you have to because you lost the key, Yeah. right? So back it up and then have the old keys so that you can go in and cycle the keys yourself instead of needing somebody else's help hmm. or, you know, whatever all kinds it of is, things. don't lose stuff. Uh, nice thing with Tarsnap, every backup is a full backup, but because of the deduplication and compression, you're not uploading all your data every time. But it means when it comes time to restore, it's just restoring one backup. You don't have to restore the the full and then apply a differential and then like three incrementals to get back to uh, the latest version of your files. <laughs> That's very nice. And if you know how to use tar, then it's basically the way you, you use tar snap because it's basically using the same syntax. And if you are the only person holding the key, you, you should keep that one key separate and secure. Then... You there's, are the only so person who can access those encrypted files. Yep. Uh, there's a convenient way to print the key out, and you can laminate it or whatever. It has check digits set up so that you can OCR, or even if you type it out, you can. it can tell you which lines you made the typo on. So you're not mm -hmm. retyping a blob of text like this and then realizing uh, there's a mistake somewhere in it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just start over? No, not with Tarsnap. It shows yes. you which line, which like, hey, this which line character. Is this this line doesn't match the checksum at the end. And you're like, oh, okay. And uh, yep, there's the mistake. Fix it and, and get your key in there. Yeah. They have also uh, man pages, of course, and a bunch of other documentation, as well as a, a book, Tarsnet Mastery, written by Michael W. Lucas. So and all the good source reasons. code. The source code is there. No other mm -hmm. backup tool or no other online backup service gives you the source code for the tools. That's yeah, why because they're... Tarsnap is the only one you can trust. It only costs $5 to get started. You might as well give it a try. Once you give it exactly. a try, you're probably going to stick with it. I am. <laughs> yeah, if you like it, then definitely use it. 
All right, um, time for our feedback and questions section for this week. Uh, we're getting a bit low on feedback that we received, so and make sure to send us. Uh, we're doing double episodes uh, two weeks in a row uh, to cover my trips for to travel. the ZFS user conference and then Linux Fest Northwest. And then we'll be back for a couple of weeks, and then we have to do another double to cover Benedict is going to a Netways something. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, for a training uh, that I'm doing for three days. Isinga Fundamentals, which is nice. Right. Uh, um, I look forward to that. So all of your emails are super helpful to keep this section of the show going, uh, especially since we lean on it a bit heavier when we have to um, come up with two weeks worth of news in one week, and especially when we have to come up with two weeks worth of news in one week two weeks in a row which is basically a month worth of news in like eight days <laughs> mm, sure well we so, could do another round of viewer interview questions yes if you have more questions please send those in as well you know uh you would uh, i know a lot of you would like to get to know us better or just understand uh things. why are we doing so, this why are we here <laughs> things uh, like that Yes, so if you have viewer interview questions, make sure you put that in the subject so we can sort them out. Uh, but feedback at bsdnow.tv and ask us your BSD questions and we'll answer them during the feedback section. Or if we get enough viewer questions, we will interview ourselves again. Uh, we're also working on a couple of interviews we're trying to get soon uh, and lots of good stuff coming there as well. But mm -hmm. if you know someone... Uh, who you have some leverage over to make them give us an interview, uh, <laughs> definitely hook us up. Uh, let us know. Feedback at bsdnow.tv. Excellent. So uh, after this uh, small section here, we start with Vikash about getting a port added. So that goes. Hello, Alan and Benedict. Thanks for the great shows. Thank you. Uh, how do I get a port added to the ports tree is the question. Uh, I've logged a bug with a bug number here back in uh, 2016, and I've updated the port version since after I've tested it in my environment. Uh, is the waiting period always this long? I'd like to contribute more ports that I will maintain, but if I can't get a port added after 16 months, uh, then it's really worth the effort. Um, let's yeah, um, look at that bug here. Yeah, so I looked at um, I see it's been classified recently. Um, ah. The hardest part is, you know, there are literally tens of thousands of these bugs and the uh, contributors don't always find your particular one. Uh, so sometimes it helps to know a couple of ports people to get in touch. So I've tagged uh, two ports committers on your bug there uh, to hopefully get some attention. And uh, if you work with them on uh, one or two, then you'll very quickly uh, get to the point where you'll have attention um yeah. it's mostly just uh the fact that we don't have enough committers in order to help all the contributors become committers uh exactly yeah. and because and, of I mean, that a lot of contributors end up not becoming committers it is a catch-22 and a problem we do need to solve i just don't know how we solve it but hopefully yeah. we solve it by getting attention on your bug getting those set up getting you maintaining a whole bunch of ports uh get you a ports commit pit and then get you searching the bug database for other people like you who feel uh, abandoned and helping them out and on and on and on. Yeah. And a vicious circle of turning everybody into a ports committer. 
Exactly. I mean, if people submit something, there is maybe 50 other people who submit something as well and it get pushed down. But it's like in your inbox where mm -hmm. a message gets pushed down and you don't uh, you lose track of that. Uh, but it's um, it shouldn't be an excuse to uh, totally ignore that bug. So yes, uh, sorry for uh, that. And uh, we hope to get that. Time. Yes. Uh, in particular, because your thing has to do with Logstash, I tagged Dan because I know he works a bunch with that uh, at his day job. Uh, so maybe that will help inspire him to be uh, interested in your report and that is actually useful to him as well. Uh, and then uh, Joseph McRone has been my uh, go-to ports person lately because <laughs> if I point him at something, he usually uh, makes something happen out of it. I feel bad for abusing him. Uh, I was oh, nice well, to him once many years ago calls. and he's been nice to me ever since and I maybe... <laughs> lean oh, on him a little too cool. much it's like oh it'd be really helpful if there was a port of this hey joseph i need a port of this and then boom it started like ah you're, you're the best i have to okay. buy him dinner at bsd can or something to make up for my abusing him a little bit <laughs> okay yeah so definitely send more uh, ports if you really like working with that and um, we hope to integrate them as fast as possible Okay, uh, thanks for that feedback. Next up is uh, Chris with Quarterly Ports Branch. So that goes like this. Well, I need to wait. I need to open that first. I accidentally I you opened it. Come on. No, no, I had opened one twice, so that's ah. so. Here it goes. Hi, Alan and Benedict and JT. If you are reading, uh, thanks for the great show. This is a long email, so feel free to split it up uh, or omit certain parts. Okay, let's see. Uh, thanks for the feedback. Uh, on episode 230, Jason asked about broken ports resulting from the default configuration of tracking head for the ports tree and the quarterly branch for packages. Uh, he posted about that last year, along with the script making it easy to use the quarterly branch for ports. So here's a blog link to um, yes, that um, article. That somehow fell off my to-do list. I was looking, I asked Colin about it, I think last year or two years ago at BSD Can about making port snap uh, versions of the quarterly branch and making it easy to, you know, in your portsnap.conf, have it download the quarterly branch and possibly even just make that the default so it matches what package does on, on releases and different on head. Um, but uh, it's nice that you have a script here that people can use in the meantime. Yeah. Oh, it looks good. I know a lot of uh, FreeBSD people watch this blog, or not just this blog, but <laughs> this uh, this episode, and maybe they can take a look. That might be a good mm -hmm. thing. Uh, so that will give you probably some uh, people uh, looking at that and uh, contacting you maybe. Uh, the second question is, uh, I'm about to start a new project at work where I'll have an influence on this uh, continuous integration, continuous de delivery slash hosting infrastructure. So I'd like to recommend FreeBSD if it fits. I've managed FreeBSD on my desktop and individual servers for years, but never a cluster. Uh, I'd need to provide an environment as easy and scalable as Docker containers managed by Kubernetes on AWS, but Docker didn't seem to be production ready on FreeBSD the last time I tried it. Any input or pointers to reference? Um, the configuration for the Jenkins cluster stuff on FreeBSD is on the GitHub, uh, like in the FreeBSD organization. Yeah, and there's also uh, more information on the FreeBSD wiki about Docker. It's not 
an official yeah, so document. Docker is not production ready on FreeBSD, but you don't have to do something that way in order to. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of instructions already there. You can try out. Maybe that's already sufficient. I guess for the CI stuff, you only I need to. Docker's build. not ready to use. I just said that. Um, yeah, true. Um, maybe you can uh, replace that with jails because they're yes, as like, isolated it as. It depends what you're doing, but you know, with your CI stuff, you generally don't need something that you throw away every two minutes, like with the Docker. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it can be set up pretty straightforward uh, but i've added the link to the show notes uh with the link to the repo where we have all the configuration and the wiki page uh for how jenkins uh the cicd stuff is run on freebsds for the official freebsd stuff uh, and maybe that'll help you get started yeah and uh, on a related note uh, i thought you mentioned that the freebsd ci slash cd team was looking for help but I can't find the details in the recent episode notes. Could you please point uh, me to the notes or links so that I can see if it's something I could help with when work slows down a bit? Um, so I recommend contacting... Is just email jenkins-admin at freebsd.org and ask them. Yep. There's That's also the, the freebsd-ci channel on EFNet. Uh, both of those are linked in the uh, wiki page, which I've added to today's show notes as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's uh, the team to contact, and they will uh, certainly be happy to get some help. And um, yeah, so good luck with your project at work. We maybe we can cover it in the future if you have made some progress there. It would be interesting for other people to see uh, how you can build a FreeBSD CI CD server in interesting ways. Because this is basically something that you need nowadays to uh, run uh, your tests and uh, deployment infrastructure. So, yeah, good good to have. So, nice that you, you tried it. Thank you for mm -hmm. And uh, last but not least is uh, Gordon about centralized storage suggestions. So, that one goes. Dear Alan and Benedict, I wonder if you are able to offer any suggestion regarding a centralized storage solution for fairly large files, typically up to several gigabytes. Uh, I look after a number of offices within a marketing group. The, of the offices are relatively small, ranging from around 8 staff to 150 staff. Wow. Each office works with a lot of documents, presentations, and media files. Why am I not surprised? Um, so the storage requirements can be quite high relative to the headcount. Unfortunately, also the budget. Typically, uh, though the files are only used regularly for a short length of time during a project, but also kept indefinitely in case they need to be referred back to. I have always ruled our centralized storage due to latency and speed on internet connections, but now, as all offices are on either 10 megabits per second or 1 gigabit per second, uh, symmetric. That was connections. 100 megabits or oh. 1 gigabit. There's a big difference there. <laughs> so, oops, I admitted that. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so he feels that it is time to revisit the possibility of centralizing storage. This would bring greater cost savings and would simplify backups a great deal. In particular, uh, he's interested in some sort of local caching storage gateway, perhaps like the AWS storage gateway, which presents a local view of all the office's um, files on the centralized storage, but only keeps a cache of the most recent files. Anything not in the cache would be pulled from the central storage. 
this would have to uh, present as server message block or Samba or Apple file protocol locally to the workstations. We use FreeNAS for a lot of our deployments, both centrally and within some remote offices. So obviously something involving ZFS would be ideal. Yes, I'd say that. Uh, are you aware of any projects that might fit my requirements? Hmm. So yes, I would definitely say ZFS for the central thing. And then for the... The nodes in the office, what you really want, yes, is some kind of like transparent Samba proxy. Um, I don't know how to get smart caching for that. Yeah, it would be uh, some kind of synchronization solution. Well, that... yeah, but synchronization is not the same thing as caching. Like if your data set was small enough that you could keep a copy on every one of the free NASs, that's one thing. Yeah. But it's more likely what you really want is... Um, some kind of cache of only files that have been modified this week on each free NAS or something or on uh, each at each office and then the Mm -hmm. big central free NAS somewhere in a data center or whatever Um, I know that uh, Panzura makes a product based on this that's FreeBSD and ZFS Um, they have a very complicated setup where um, so in the ZFS block pointer, there's the three slots for the up to the three copies, and it's basically addresses of the where it is on your VDEVs. Um, except for in the Panzura version, the third one refers to the cloud or the central storage, basically. Um, and so copies of files can exist locally and in the cloud at the same time or whatever. Uh, anyway. But the, I think the metadata for everything is always everywhere. I'm not entirely sure how that works. Anyway, mm. um, I'm not aware of anything that would do the caching quite like that. But that'd be really nice. I'm almost like a. Uh-huh. I don't know if you'd want to do that, like as an add-on to Samba, or try to do it underneath Samba. Because in particular, what you'd really like is read-ahead type of thing. So if Samba's trying to read, you know, a file that doesn't exist on the local node. It will pull it from the remote node, but it will read ahead some reasonable amount so that hopefully then when this request for the next chunk comes from Samba, it's already arrived. Yeah. So it would be doesn't Freenas have something like that? Because I think that's a problem yeah. they also have to deal with in a larger scale. There's not really any sort of clustered mm. solution for ZFS. Um mm. Because you probably don't actually want to cluster anyway. Caching is a yeah. very different approach. Hmm. Maybe some of your notes. Like a, an L3 cache for <laughs> uh, L3 arc for uh, ZFS, um, which caches stuff that actually exists somewhere else. But that'd be a <laughs> lot to build. Yeah. I don't know a solution. Maybe somebody else does. Yeah. Um. Yeah, send this to us um, along with your other comments, questions, um, and we'll link you up with Gordon to uh, connect you. All right. Uh, but anyway, thanks for the question. Um, and uh, Remember to yeah, send us your questions, feedback at bsdnow.tv. That's feedback at bsdnow.tv. I'm just going to sit here and keep saying that until you send us an email. Yeah, oh, please stop. Feedback at bsdnow.tv. <laughs> anyway uh we will see you next week uh and if you're watching remember um we're also recording an 
extra episode on April 6th. So if you happen to be around at 2 o'clock Eastern, which is, what is that, um, 6 p.m. UTC, uh, hop on the live stream and join the IRC channel and, you know, participate in the live show. Yeah, where everything can happen from bloopers to uh, me messing up the English language. Um, you know, thanks for watching and see you next time. Bye.